We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. I'm joined in the studio this evening by New Bloom's Brian Hugh. Thanks for having me. And Nicholas Smith of the UK's Telegraph. Good evening. Tonight we'll be discussing concern in the United States over calls for an independence referendum, renewed calls for Taiwan businesses in China to return to Taiwan, plans to tighten rules on visits to China by former civil servants, some rather disturbing news about the African swine fever scare, and a tweet that raised some rather iry feelings here in Taiwan. But we'll begin with a seven-day strike by China Airlines pilots that hit travellers at the end of the Lunar New Year holiday and continued into this week, affecting thousands more. The strike was called to an end late Thursday after the airline and the pilots union Taoyuan reached an agreement following four rounds of negotiations. The talks centred on issues including work hours, recruitment and bonuses and the two sides reached several agreements on a series of issues and those issues included overwork, recruitment and promotion of foreign pilots, bonuses and the improvement of management labour relations. Now pilots union Taoyuan chairwoman Li Xinyen says that its members have also agreed not to strike for the duration of the collective agreement, which will remain in place for three years, and any further labour disputes will be dealt with through arbitration. Now, according to the airline, roughly 20,000 passengers booked on about 100 flights were affected by the strike, although local media has said that number is probably close to 30,000. There have also been calls for China Airlines's big head honcho to step down over his company's handling of the strike. So, Brian, China Airlines' handling of the strike and the union's handling of the strike. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'm actually quite surprised that it, it dragged on for so long. Uh, this this strike was anticipated far in advance, and it was it was some surprising that the strike was declared um, late, actually, into the Lunar New Year holiday, and then it dragged on for another week. Um, when we did see the previous 2016 China Airlines flight attendant strike, that was much shorter. Actually, it did not last so long, and so obviously, with the strike that's much longer, the effect is is much larger. Um, I think that there's a, been a pattern of of uh, transportation unions, and particularly in the airline industry, encouraged by the actions of uh, unions in in some companies. And so, it's actually possible. I think there will be more strikes in the future. Um, at the same time, though, it's it, there's more backlash for this strike, let's say, compared to the strike in 2016, which was a major precedent. And so, um, there's there's backlash against the union. Yeah, it doesn't make me want to fly China Airlines. Um, I mean, you know, I'm not completely anti-strike when 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 things need to be done, but to choose a time where families are all travelling and it's it's the holidays and people have special places to go and it's not just routine business, I think it's actually quite cynical. It shouldn't be the public who have to suffer. Um, they could have chosen a different type time for a strike. Um, to sort it out. I mean, nobody wants... uh, I know that one of the major issues was fatigued pilots and nobody wants tired pilots, but really I don't think it's... um, the public should have been made to suffer the most from this strike. Do you think they possibly timed it for them because, of course, it would make major inconvenience? Yes, absolutely. I mean, you know, that's when um, over Lunar New Year, that's when everybody wants to travel. They actually hike up the price price of flights um, and people want to see their family and friends and and kind of have those precious few days off. There are not that many holidays in Taiwan. So, yeah, I, I just don't think that that's a a good strategy to make the public want to fly with China Airlines, you know, and it, it could ultimately backfire. People might just choose a different airline, um, especially if there's a possibility of more strikes coming up. 
um, you know, people need to have that guarantee that they can get from A to B. And Brian, of course, China Airlines handling of the strike. Of course, when they were asked whether you're going to pay compensation to the passengers that were stranded, they said no. Mm-hmm. And they quickly changed their minds. It's somewhat surprising because I think that China Airlines hasn't really handled the PR from this very well. They haven't. Uh, there's been a lot of complaints about they haven't provided measures to make up for um, people that had their flights cancelled and things like that. And it is surprising because they have had uh, basically two, three years since the last strike to really work on how to cope with these measures. Um, the management claimed itself that in 2016 that strike had effects that last for six months afterwards. And so if that's true, then why didn't they make changes this time? Um, I mean, personally, I feel the pilots were, were really just pushed to this point. Management wasn't budging. Um, they still did run at 90% capacity for uh, a significant part of the Lunar New Year. And so I also just wonder, because 900 of the 1,400 or so pilots were on strike, so then what about those 500 pilots? Like, were they just being overworked during this time? Um, and that could also have effects going forward. Oh, it could have effects. I mean, why weren't they on strike? I mean, did they not mm. agree with the strike? Uh, I'm, I wouldn't be surprised if some pilots didn't, or they, they just wanted to make money because they have to, or um, internal politics or things like that. I mean, it's just a union will not always represent every every member of a um, of a, the employees in a company. I mean, there was also the 200 employees of China Airlines that rallied in support of management, although there were also accusations that they were kind of sent out by management, that these were office workers and not actually pilots that were uh, being sent out to, to make it seem as though China Airlines employees were uh, against the pilot striking. And of course, Nicola, they targeted foreign pilots. Yeah. Which of course, the foreign pilots work for the airlines, so technically the union represents them as well, surely. Well, you would think. I mean, I did find that very discriminatory um, and quite unusual in the world of kind of global aviation where pilots are pretty interchangeable from airlines. I mean, it's very rare that you have just local pilots flying, um, you know, international routes for for international airlines. And it, it seems... Um, unwise to put those kind of restrictions in. Um, you know, what if you have a shortage of pilots down down the road, um, as has happened, say, um, in India, or um, I think also Emirates, uh, other airlines like that are, are struggling to find pilots sometimes. So I, I just think um, you need to have a bit of a longer term vision. The unions also need to strike the, the right balance um, where they don't uh, annoy the public so much that they just start losing business because then everyone's going to be out of, of a job. Right, Brian, I mean, obviously Starlux Airlines mm. is on the agenda. <laughs> They've got the former Ever Airways chat, head honcho. Mm. It's going to start Starlux. Do you think possibly these airline pilots from China Airlines possibly are thinking ahead and using the Starlux being set up as leverage over China Airlines to make changes now, thinking we could jump ship and go and work for Starlux. I wonder. I mean, that's also an accusation that's been made. I think that uh, the accusation you see much more is that uh, because the, the Taoran Union of Pilots also represents uh, members of EVA, that that there's cooperation. And, um, you know, for example, they were demanding some of the conditions that uh, EVA pilots currently have, such as a one month, bo- a bonus, a yearly bonus equivalent to one month's pay. And so I think just there, they, there's this look at the industry as a whole. And, you know, the union really wanted to represent the industry as a whole. And so maybe they will use this as leverage. If there's a new airline and they have better conditions, they will use that as leverage in their own companies. I don't know if they'd be considering jumping to another company, but they will use that as leverage, definitely. Because it would be rather amusing if the Starlux boss turned around and said, you know, I, I wouldn't hire any of those pilots that took strike action. Because I don't, want, I don't, I don't want possible. my pilots to take strike action. I think uh, it's also quite possible the management still retaliates, despite that one of the promises they made after the negotiation was that they would not retaliate against anyone that went on strike. Um, since the 2016 flight attendant strike, there have been a lot of cases where there's accusations of uh, management retaliating against organizers in those strikes. Quite possible, yeah. But 
you know, workers have to stand up for their rights as well. And also if if, if um, the the pilots are saying that they suffer fatigue, then that's the last thing you want in, in an aircraft. I mean, that's obviously the most important issue here. Um, you don't want to compromise safety. But... Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think if it was, if they did take a kind of calculated bet on maybe negotiating themselves into another airline, then it, it would be a risky strategy. Right, moving on, and calls by Formosa Television Chairman Guo Pei Hong for a referendum on Taiwan's independence are not sitting well in the United States. Now, Guo has repeatedly said that he believes Taiwan should create an independent state this year and move towards becoming a normal country. Now, the Referendum Act currently doesn't allow votes on matters that seek to change the country's constitution or touch on sovereignty issues, and Guo is now urging lawmakers to revise the Referendum Act once again to allow for such votes. Now, former American Institute in Taiwan chairman Richard Bush is warning against such a move, saying that any referendum on Taiwan independence will touch on the national interests of the United States, and the backers of such a proposal should not simply presume that US forces would come to Taiwan's aid in the event of conflict with China over the issue. While the American Institute in Taiwan this week also voiced its concerns about the referendum, with spokeswoman Amanda Mansour saying that the US opposes any unilateral actions aimed at altering the cross-strait status quo and it's been long-standing US policy not to support a referendum on Taiwan independence. Now of course for this side's part Foreign Minister spoke Foreign Ministry rather spokesman Andrew Lee says while the Tsai administration respects the people's right to initiate a referendum it will also take into consideration Taiwan's role in maintaining peace and stability in the region. So of course Brian if this referendum does go ahead because they lower the thresholds or they change the referendum act not much chance of peace and stability in the region eh? It doesn't surprise me that this is the U.S. position. I think that uh, when Taiwan does take action that maybe doesn't breaks from what the U.S. is able to, let's say, control or influence, then the U.S. will not react always so well. And that includes, for example, moving towards uh, de jure independence in, in some way that is not the current status quo. Um, this has been said in the past. I mean, it really uh, it was after uh, Richard Bush made uh, that wrote an editorial for Brookings that people are talking about this. Um, I'm actually a little surprised because this issue came up uh, in November, really, with the referendum on what name Taiwan would participate in the 2020 Olympics under, and uh, this push by the Formosa Alliance for some kind of more solid form of independence. Um, but now it's only being discussed. Um, but at the same time, you know, you've all had comments in the past, for example, by Stephen Yates um, that probably America would not support a referendum on Taiwan's independence. And, and so AIT has also followed up. I mean, Bush doesn't represent America because he's a former AIT head, but uh, this is America's position, and it's, it's not surprising. I think some even Taiwan perceive Bush as maybe more Democrat because he served primarily under the Clinton administration. But, you know, Richard Yates is a Republican, and so it is quite bipartisan as well. Um, it's kind of, you know, opposition towards a referendum. I just don't see it happening at all. I mean, I, I don't see how the government can let it go ahead, you know, given the geopolitical implications and and also just the risk to Taiwan. And I, I actually think if the government turned around and said, no, we're not doing this referendum out of security concerns, I don't think that the public would, there would be a public backlash because, you know, the majority of Taiwanese do not want polls have shown that they do not want to seek actual independence and that they're much more in favour of the status quo. Nobody really wants to rock the boat with China. They just want to be left on their own. And of course, Brian, the re- changing the Referendum Act again, because of course, mm-hmm. 
They, <laughs> they gloriously did this before with the DPP, thinking, hey, great, we've got Referendum Act, we'll change it and we'll do really well. And, of course, it all backfired last November on them, didn't it, when they mm, were left rather right. red-faced because, of course, the referendums that were going against their policies won. <coughs> um, yeah, that's right. I, it was, the DPP was surprised by that. I think there was this kind of blind faith that the Taiwanese electorate would basically vote the way they wanted to. And sometimes um, the Taiwanese voters just were not happy with the DPP, and sometimes the way they voted was surprising. Uh, independence has been a long-standing demand, and settling this issue is by referendum has also been something that the Pan-Green camp has historically pushed for. And so um, having America, which, which also Taiwan relies on to secure its independence from China, uh, oppose that referendum, I mean, it has to kind of work through this issue. Um, it gets it really offends the heart of the the deep greens, particularly under as aligned with quo, uh, quo or with the foremost alliance and so forth. And who would they who would they vote for then if the DPP just says no, we're not going to do it? Um, it's a question because you know Tsai is also criticized by uh, the deep greens within the DPP who are still influential, just that she hasn't pushed as hard as they would like to see her do for Tony's independence. But just kind of how to be somewhere in between yet move slowly towards independence—that is the kind of challenge. How to keep all parties happy. I kind of see some parallels here with the Tory government, sorry, in the UK, where, you know, much of the the Brexit referendum is caused by internal Tory party disputes. And I think you have to, as as a national leader, you have to sometimes put aside internal party disputes and put the good of the country first um, and take that kind of bigger picture decision and not just kind of listen to the voices of dissent who are making your life harder within your own party. Um, And, you know, my view would be that a referendum of this nature would fall into that category and that, you know, the government just has to um, make a decision on what's best for the country. Yeah, they'd probably have to do some work about what happens if they vote this way and what happens if they vote that way. Which, yeah. of course, David Cameron didn't actually do, did he, well, in our nobody, country? Nobody no, nobody did that, yeah. No. So there you go. Maybe the government should take a look at what happened in our country and go, no, let's not have a referendum about that. About anything. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, President Tsai Ing-wen this week continued to urge Taiwanese business owners operating in China to move their manufacturing bases back to Taiwan. And speaking at a Lunar New Year gathering of China-based business people in Taipei this Monday, Tsai said that returning to Taiwan will allow them to better adapt to the volatile global economic environment and also avoid the negative impact of the trade conflict between China and the United States. And while Tsai admitted that Taiwan is facing several economic challenges, she also said that the current situation presents an opportunity for industrial upgrade and the government is confident it can overcome any obstacles. Now, according to Tsai Ing-wen, Taiwan's challenges include a slowdown in economic growth and exports due to the China-US trade tensions and a changing industrial environment. And the president also told the delegation that her administration is actively seeking to help their companies move back to Taiwan to improve their industrial competitiveness and to help the market in Taiwan more effectively open itself to the wider world. Well, it seems like a great strategy as as long as... um they can she can listen to the the concerns of business leaders and and address those um i mean why not uh, you know why not try to to bring business back there's already been a huge brain drain from taiwan um it would certainly help help the comp- uh, the country uh, and the economy um but you know the elections are not too far off now so if i was a business leader i would be kind of a bit concerned about whether the government policy would change again after the election you need to have that stability 
Um, yeah, I was actually a little surprised though by uh, by Ty saying this because uh, um, it depends on kind of what industry she's hoping to come back. And I wonder if it's manufacturing actually, which I think manufacturing coming back from China to Taiwan seems quite unlikely um, because the standard of living is too high, wages are too high, and so it's more likely they would relocate to I think uh, Southeast Asia, um, which is maybe also the the what Ty hopes to do with let's say the new Southwards policy. However, um, this kind of notion of, of let's say manufacturing coming back to Taiwan does actually get circulated sometimes, um, particularly among the uh, maybe. Let's say the deep green camp, and though there's this kind of, I think, um, this notion that you know manufacturing come back will restore our glory days of manufacturing in Taiwan and so forth. Um, you see this narrative in other parts of the world too, such as the U.S. Um, this notion under Donald Trump that you know manufacturing will come back to America and American glory will return. I wonder if this can actually happen, and so that is actually a question to me. Um, so I also I also wonder, but at the same time, I think Tsai would probably say this before elections because it does seem good um, for her if. It's seen as Chinese business are coming back to uh, from China to Taiwan. Um, I also just I also just uh, wonder though because there are quite a lot of reports in the media that claim because of the U.S. China trade war, businesses from China that that are based in China currently are already coming back. And I feel like a six month old trade war is a little too soon for that to have happened. Although maybe companies are considering this. And of course, Nicola, there's also been concerns about energy supplies if the companies come back, a lack of land to build factories, and a lack of manpower. Well, yes, of course. I mean, you can't just kind of give this aspirational notion to companies, say, come back. Um, as Brian said, you know, the, the trade war is still kind of in its early days. We don't know how it's going to go. And, and companies need a long-term strategy. They need long-term conditions to be put in place that will deal with issues that they foresee five, ten years down the line. So all of these um, questions that you mentioned of energy, of, of you know, the workforce, of uh, all of these conditions that they need um, to sustain a long-term business. I think President Tsai really needs to put, rather than just put this kind of aspiration to them, she would need to put a plan to them, say, okay, these are the problems we've identified. Um, this is what we will do uh, to address those problems five, ten years down the line. And I, I, don't, I don't see how she's really in the position to do that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that, uh, yeah, I mean, depends on what industry. Maybe uh, maybe startups, for example, moving back to how many startups that went to China because of incentives. Um, but, yeah, it just it depends on, on, on Tsai having a concrete economic vision for Taiwan just to provide uh, the conditions for factories, uh, uh, for business to come back and, and stay here. Because the trade war will be over. Um, you know, at, at some point it will be over, and we don't know how long that's going to take. But you know, the kind of deep-seated issues still remain in Taiwan, regardless of relations between the US and China. So I think companies will probably be thinking more about that than the immediate concern about the trade war. Mm. Yeah, because I think just China's not going to disappear anytime soon. Even if its economy is, is shaken up by the trade war, it's still larger than Taiwan. It, it always will be, um, economically or in terms of land or resource available or just uh, manpower even. And yeah. So it is. It is just then. What then? What would actually convince uh, Taiwanese companies to come back what, for, to somewhere that's smaller and maybe costs are higher? Anyway, we have to take a short break now, but we'll be right back after these brief commercials.
Welcome back to Taiwan This Week and the Mainland Affairs Council this Wednesday announced plans to tighten regulations and ban high-ranking military officers and political appointees from participating in political activities in China. The council says that it would give priority to securing amendments to the Act Governing Relations between the people of the Taiwan area and the mainland area during the new legislative session, which began this morning as we're recording the show. Now, under one of the draft amendments, former high-ranking military officers and political appointees will be prohibited from taking part in political activities in China for at least 15 years after they retire, while civil servants and military personnel who have had access to classified information will be banned from travelling to China for a minimum of three years after they retire. Now, officials say the penalty for violations of the new laws will be a suspension of monthly pensions or a fine of up to 5 million NT. Now, the DPP is also coming out in full support of this, with its lawmakers saying it's going to make these amendments to this act a priority for the new legislative session, while the KMT has come out and said, hang on a minute, why do you need to do this? So, Brian, why do you think they need to do this? Do they really need to ban people from going to China? I think there's renewed concern about this, particularly uh, before elections. A lot of uh, senior KMT officials that were prominent in the Ma administration now are coming back, including Ma himself. And uh, there's this fear that they will try to negotiate with China in some way that will will uh, try to override the current government. And, and for example, even uh, Wu Duanyi has suggested a peace treaty with China um, or something like that. And so the, the DPP really fears the KMT trying to circumvent its, its authority as the governing party. Um, yeah, at the same time, I think the challenge facing the DPP is how to present this as not being political persecution. Um, just in Taiwan, after democratization, it's very easy to make this accusation that you're, you're uh, violating democratic principles, even when this is actually just prevent, let's say, we call it treason. Um, it's challenging. At the same time, though, I just wonder, because historically we've had this problem for so long regarding people that go to China, um, former military personnel and civil servants and so forth, and it seems like usually they go and they're not stopped at the border or anything like that. Um, with the NTU presidential controversy... Guan Zhongming went to China, and they found about it later. And you know, there's, there's despite being a former high-ranking minister under the Ma administration, there's like nobody that stopped him at the border. It's quite puzzling to me, actually. I think it sits uncomfortably with a democracy to have that kind of ban in place. Um, I mean, how do you define political activities in China? Is that you know, kind of going and just meeting with with Communist Party officials or um, with the government there to kind of talk to them about um, possible ways through challenges with Taiwan. I mean, really, can you can you ban that kind of dialogue? I, I just think that's a very um, slippery slope to go down. With the with military officials, I can understand a bit more concern, um, you know, if, if they do have um, access to military secrets or um, kind of highly classified uh information that that could compromise the security of Taiwan, then, yeah, I think you need to be stricter. You have to have stricter rules in place for, you know, their own protection, for Taiwan's own protection. But when it comes to politicians, then I just don't think you can really um, put a ban on political leaders interacting with China, if that's what this is. I mean, it, it seems to be a bit, uh, the wording of, of um, the amendments, it, it just seems to be a bit um, hazy to me. But if, if that's what it is, then I, I just don't see how you can, you can do that and say you're still a democracy. Yeah, I think it's the paradoxes of uh, democracy in a place where there's an entire 
side of the political way, a, a spectrum that calls for unification with another country. And so then what do you do then? How do you really deal with this kind of issue? And I think that most often you can't. Um, there are attempts to sort of call people in line, whether with regards to civil servants or uh, former military officials or whatever. Uh, for example, you know, when Ko Wenzhou goes to China, he's required to submit his speeches to the National Security Council. But then you always have incidents of him saying something that wasn't on the, 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 the script that he submitted, uh, such as, you know, that there's one family on both sides of the straits. And then what then? You can't actually take any action against him because then that will be seen as political persecution. And regardless, what could you do anyway? Um, so there's that paradox, and I think it's, it's unresolved. Um, with civil servants or military officials, for the people that are, are lower level and not so in the public eye, this kind of stuff just happens. And, um, you know, what then? How do you, how do you deal with someone that wants to go to vacation versus someone uh, to China to someone that is wanting to uh, have a meeting with the CCP officials? Um, it's very hard to draw the line sometimes. That's right. Yeah, I mean, you know, every country has rules for its national security officials because they have to protect themselves and they have to protect those officials who may go to a country in good faith and, you know, have their phone tapped or, or you know, or be compromised in some way. Uh, you've got to have those kind of rules in place. But I I just, you know, again, there is a section of the population in Taiwan who wants to engage with China and who wants, who, who wants kind of to move towards unification. And that can't just be dismissed if you... If you're a democracy, then you have to accept that there are people who think differently to you. And to put those kind of restrictions on politicians, I just think it's a very unhealthy way to tackle it. Of course, Brian, Kaohsiung Mayor Hang Yu mm-hmm. has made a big stink recently about how he's going to go to China and sign some agreements with chi- southern Chinese cities. Mm-hmm. The South-South right. Agreement, South-South <laughs> Cooperation, screamed the headline on the China Times this week. I mean, this is also spooking the government. I think so. I mean, Han, is, his presence, as, as I think everyone knows, is disproportionately large in the media. And if Han does raise a stink about the government uh, persecuting him for doing these things with China, then that could reflect badly on the Thai administration. So there's, there's a fine line to walk there. Um, and Han is an example, and there, there are many others. I mean, uh, in, even in the KMT, they're contesting factions now that just want to have something with China, some kind of uh, move to have closer relations with China. It's also their way of kind of uh, fighting against each other, to who can get this agreement or whatever first. Um, and just then, just the China administration is, is, it's, it doesn't have a good response to this. Um, that's the paradox. You know, at best, what I could do is maybe just condemn it uh, verbally um, in a statement, uh, maybe impose a fine, I think, at the most, which is... Uh, Still, just the slap on the wrist, really, um, for for politicians. But then, you know, uh, you really can't do something. Let's say uh, putting someone in jail. Let's say the way Chen Shui-bian was put in jail. That, I think that's very unlikely to happen. I also don't think you can win that argument with the public. I mean, if he's if he's wanting to have more cooperation with southern cities in China, mm-hmm. I mean. I, you know, obviously, it's not just a big political strategy. It's also for economic reasons, which is you know one of which was you know, why he's in office as well, that people were worried about the impact of um, tensions with China on the economy. And if you have that kind of economic cooperation between the south of Taiwan and south of China, then people are going to want that because they want the business. So it's very difficult for the government to kind of do anything that the public would perceive to be restrictions on, on economic development. So I think maybe what the government should do then is to try to in, uh, to try to uh, push politicians that do go to China maybe to not cross certain lines. I mean, setting a kind of uh, a minimum threshold not to cross. I mean, as we just saw with the the wave of support that Tsai Ing-wen received after uh, Xi Jinping's speech on January second, uh, the public still doesn't want to lose its democratic freedoms, and it will re- uh, react badly against when uh, those freedoms seem under threat. And so just uh, if it does frame the issue in a way that, okay, maybe you can go have these exchanges with China so long as you don't do this, that will undermine the foundation of democracy, then I think the public would be more receptive to uh, taking more severe measures against people that do go to China and engage in these kind of uh, exchanges and so forth. 
Right, an African swine fever may no longer be making headlines and stories of people at airports being caught with pork products may have disappeared from the daily news cycle but news did come out this week that several hundred pig farms have failed to adhere to government guidelines on ASF prevention. Now, according to the Council of Agriculture, 582 pig farms have ignored government guidelines and the farm owners have failed to either cease using pig swill made from leftovers, make upgrades, shut down their operations or transition to crop based feeds. Now the farms are now being investigated by local authorities and will be deemed to be operating illegally if they fail to make any changes. Now the farms are facing a maximum daily fine of 6,000 NT until March the 31st when they will simply be forced to close down. So Nicola first of all we had the it's going to spread everywhere, then we had the people bringing in pork products, they confiscated them, then we had the controversy over where do we put our pork waste when we go to the garbage trucks and now the pig farms aren't actually helping themselves. Yeah, I really don't understand this. I just think like, it's kind of beyond me. <laughs> it's, it, it, why would you not do everything you possibly could to protect your livelihood, especially when you know people are being fined massive amounts coming into the airport um, and everyone's kind of pulling, to, trying to pull together. The government's trying to do everything it can. I do like the introduction of the cute beagles to the airport, but... You know, why would you not help yourself? It's just, it's, yeah, it's just insane. Yeah, it puzzles me. I feel like the when people do try to pass meat products through the airport, they just somehow imagine the law doesn't apply to them or that they won't get caught or something like that. And uh, they just want to get around it because it is convenient to throw away these things that they bought. And so I think that for these pig farms, it is really the same thing. Sometimes um, the response to a threat is just to, to bury your head in the dirt like an ostrich or something like that. Um, and so I think that that is that is part of the issues with uh, this why it's become such an issue that um, you know it's very difficult getting people to follow regulations sometimes in spite of the fact that this might be for the greater good because it just seems inconvenient um, at that point in time. But I think this could backfire against the government. I mean, the government closed down 582 pig farms, mm-hmm. and the, depending which areas of the country these pig farms are in. Mm. It could not bode well for the government, the central government. That's right. I mean, just uh, the farmers and, and their votes, then maybe pig farmers will be a constituency against the time administration in the future. Um, that could happen. Um, at the same time, this is for the greater good of the industry. And it is surprising because uh, I think the government has, has done a widespread campaign to uh, really educate the public. I mean, announcing this uh, when garbage trucks come or using all these uh, pictures of cute beagles and things like that and uh, circulating that on the Internet. Um, these, these kind of advertising campaigns or, or uh, the things that you see in the airport, for example, the signs and, and so forth. Um, but sometimes just edu- attempts at education in the public just go so far if the public isn't willing to help themselves. And, of course, the pig farmers here in Taiwan are a rather powerful group. Of course, because we had the ractopamine pork mm-hmm. from the US and the government backed down on that because, of course, it was scared of losing the pig farmers' votes. Mm-hmm. Um, that's right. And that, that was a case in which uh, American uh, pro- agricultural products threatened domestic products. And this is a case in which domestic products themselves are just, are just threatened by uh, disease. And Th- so themselves? It is, yeah, it's surprising <laughs> that they didn't take action on this. Um. <laughs> yeah, you've got to take some kind of action. I mean, you've got to... You've, you've got to keep in mind that there are pig mm-hmm. farmers who are complying with the regulations it's not fair on them as well if like you know mm-hmm. there are other people in the mix who are just not bothering and risking everyone um so you know perhaps the government could find 
measures of sanction that are less extreme than shutting them down. I think, I think it's one of those issues just with a lot of, uh, you know, there's a lot of violations of law that occur with big businesses in Taiwan or just, you know, let's say let's say building houses. There's so much housing, building code violations that you see all the time and uh, people think they can get away with it and there's an earthquake happens, the building collapses. And I think what we're seeing here is just kind of the similar uh, attitude among pig farmers almost, just that, you know, there's this notion of that you don't have to deal with it until the issue arises. Um, I mean, that's that's also why we have all these food safety scandals, I think, with, you know, adulterated um, uh, food oils and, and that kind of thing. People cut corners and costs uh, in order to save costs. And I think that's another example. Um, sometimes people don't want to make the change because of the fact that it will cost more, despite the fact that this threatens to wipe out the entire industry. I mean, do you think possibly the pig farmers think, oh, it's in China, it's not here. They're thinking it won't come here. It's kind of an abstract threat, I feel like, because, uh, um, and I actually do think the government has done a fairly good job in terms of education, because, you know, it's not a disease that affects humans, it only affects pigs. And so the, the, the claim is that, you know, we won't have, like, uh, the raw fat or things like that if uh, this disease wipes out the pork industry. Um, but at the same time, there's, there's a precedent of just uh, of diseases severely affecting Taiwan's agricultural sector um, with regards to animals and livestock and that kind of thing and just wiping out entire industries. And so um, just I think almost just then, if, if there's still these issues, then the uh, farmers and uh, people that raise animals just have not learned from prior experience within even the last 20 years. Why would you be so complacent when you're the ones most at risk and like you have you have the highest stakes in the game i mean if if you're you know pig herds wiped out by this then that's it you know you've lost your business so why would you cut corners in that i I hate to be pessimistic because then they'll be on the front page of the paper standing on Catherine Boulevard in Taipei screaming that the government should compensate us. Yeah, I think that would, that would probably <laughs> yeah, be the perhaps. Yeah, and I think that, uh, yeah, just the, the hope is that the government will step in and, and, and take care of this in some way. Maybe, I mean, maybe then the government should try to, I mean, the government has provided subsidies, but also just uh, in terms of making it more attractive to pig farmers to make the switch in spite of uh, the costs. I mean, maybe then the government needs to work on that. Um, yeah. <laughs> Anyway, before we go today, a tweet by a BuzzFeed reporter who just happened to once work for ICRT caused some rather iry feelings over the Lunar New Year holiday. Now, Cassie Cho tweeted, Friendly reminder that you don't get to celebrate Lunar New Year unless you're literally from a country that does or if you are invited by someone who is from a country that does. Now, I sent Miss Cho an email asking if she wanted to make any comments about said tweet, but she explained her schedule was rather busy and she had no time to talk this week. So, Brian, we might as well start with you. You're the only one qualified in this room to answer this question. If me and Nicola wish to have a Lunar New Year bash, can we do so? I think there's no issue with that. I just think that uh, oftentimes you see this kind of cultural essentialism that, you know, if, if this is not your culture, you can't do this or you can't eat this or whatever. But, I mean, cultures are just built on interactions with other cultures to begin with. I mean, there's no uh, essential... You know, you can't. I mean, cultures interact with each other. Exchange. That's that's how cultures develop, and that's I think the nice thing about it. I mean, sharing holiday traditions is a beautiful thing. Um, but I think sometimes there is this kind of anxiety, uh, particularly from let's say Asians or Asian Americans, that uh, somehow they're the only people that can claim that. And seeing this kind of uh, sometimes seeing something commercialized or commodified that doesn't ring well to people. And so those kind of concerns I can understand, but this kind of essentialism and exclusion it kind of just recreates the problem. I think. So Nicola, there you go. Was do you think it was more a case of like? What are they called when someone tweets something to get attention? Click, well, uh, yeah, like clickbait. I, you know, th- part of me thought that because it was such a strange thing to say that maybe it was just um, tweeted to generate a lot of reaction. Um, and I noticed that she didn't really follow up when, you know, um, a lot of people, there was a, a real kind of outpouring of, uh, especially from people of Asian or Chinese origin saying, no, we compl- you don't speak for us. Uh, we completely disagree with this. And... Uh, 
you know, let's let's just be clear from the start. It's not a friendly reminder. It's kind of downright hostile. Mm. Um, you know, and at first it kind of got my back up, and then actually it just made me kind of sad because you know, in an age where there's so many political divisions and people are so divided um, over uh, politics, um, you know, Brexit, Trump, whatever. Uh, national celebrations are something that bring us together and kind of foster that understanding between cultures, help us to understand each other more. Um, and this should be a time of joy, not of exclusion and of divisiveness. Um, you know, I, personally, I love it when, when I see people joining in Burns Night celebrations, you know, and kind of, or, or Scottish Cayley dances and kind of making fools of themselves like we all do, you know, and it's like a kind of good, fun moment. And I just don't see why you have to, you know, be so exclusive towards other people um, and, and, and just kind of try and push them away when they want to understand more about your, your culture or want to, you know, celebrate with you. There's a, there's a real difference between appropriation and appreciation of cultures. Right, Brian, you, you do Twitter, you tweet, mm-hmm. That's so right. to speak, and you, did you look at the comments on um, this yeah, tweet? Yeah, I thought, the, I thought the most funny one was, uh, it was probably from an Asian or Asian-American guy who just said, well, all of you are invited then. Like, I invite you all, so therefore you're all invited then. Uh, I thought that was quite clever. Um, but yeah, I think that sometimes, unfortunately, the response to this age of divisions is to actually create more divisions. To uh, it's just, It comes from a place of anxiety to say something like this, just this, uh, in observing all these social divisions. So you want to maintain your own, to have your own place that you know you can exclude others from. And I think that, that's quite disappointing. Um, but at the same time, I do see this actually, unfortunately... Uh, Quite commonly, I mean, there there's a there's a crowd of people that will actually this this kind of idea will resonate with that uh, only I of this of this ethnicity can celebrate this or whatever, and it is actually it comes from people that are morally politically progressive on other issues, and unfortunately on this they are not progressive, um, and again I think it comes from actually what is also a form of anxiety, particularly in uh, multicultural contexts, and so unfortunately the, it's also just to try and draw barriers and just box yourself off. Nicola, did you look at the comments? Uh, yeah, I did. Um, you know, and I was kind of, I was cheered to see that how many people disagreed with her, like how many people who do actually celebrate Lunar New Year, as Brian said, were saying, no, we want you to enjoy it with us. Um, so, you know, she obviously doesn't speak for the majority. Um, and I think very often this is the case that it's that this kind of idea of cultural appropriation is much more of a Western anxiety. Like, you know, if you look at um, the case of Ariana, Ariana mm. Grande and her tattoo on her hands, which I think was supposed to say... Um, seven rings. Seven, yeah. seven rings, yeah. I mean, it said like small barbecue or something. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's kind of embarrassing for her. But then the, the, the whole debate that sprung up about, oh, well, she's trying to appropriate Japanese culture... Um, and then so many people in Japan were like, we don't have a problem with this. You know, we, we're kind of happy that she appreciates Japan. And I think it's, it, sometimes it, it just really goes down this rabbit hole of, you know, like uh, people being e- too easily offended about something that is just not. Offensive. Yeah, and I also just think that there's kind of no, uh, you know, original culture that just doesn't have influences from other cultures to begin with. I mean, should I not eat hot pot because it's really Mongolian? That's supposedly, <laughs> and I'm not Mongolian, so am I not justified to eat that? Like, things yeah, like, that. like I think one of the comments was, you know, um, this product comes from this place, this comes from this place, and so good luck making it to 10 a.m. if you don't want to have any culture, you know, influences from any other 
cultures. Um, I can't remember all of the examples given, but you know, there, that's that's the kind of great thing about humanity that you know, um, people do share ideas and and um, thoughts and and kind of pieces of their culture, and and you know, that's kind of one of the positive things about humanity in an age where there there is so much division. Um, you know, and 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 frankly, if if the UK had to rely on its own food, then we'd we'd be eating potatoes and beans. Yeah, but you're really, from Scotland. Really. You're from Scotland. You'd have haggis, turnips. <laughs> you know, you'd have haggis and neeps, wouldn't you? You'd be all right. Yeah? We have to steal other people's food. <laughs> Historically, my lot have come and stolen your food. Yeah, that's true. You stole you a go. sheep. There you go. Anyway, that's where we'll leave it here this week here on Taiwan This Week. And I've been joined in the studio today by Brian Hugh. Good night. And Nicola Smith. Thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcasts on iTunes and Android podcast apps where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 8 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.